I'm excited to dig into Ruth chapter number four this morning as we conclude our Ruth series. We have uh, taken 11 different weeks. Today is the 11th week to go verse by verse through the book of Ruth. If you've missed any of them on the back of the notes in your bulletin today, you will see the titles of those messages. You can go online and listen to those and follow along to catch up. But it has been quite the journey as we have looked into Go Into the Unknown. And it's been one of those stories that Ruth and Naomi have taken us along this journey and coming to the climax here, the end is quite an exciting finish. Now, as we get started, I wonder, have you ever wondered if your life will ever get better? Have you ever been there before? I mean, you look at other people and you're like, man, they're so happy and things just seem to be clicking, connecting for them. And, and uh, boy, I just, I just wish I could, I could do that too. And, and sometimes our tendency is to, to be focused on surviving instead of thriving. And so all of a sudden we're just like, man, if I can just survive this week and then we get to the next week, you're like, okay, well, if we can just survive this week. And then for some of you, it's like, can I survive this day? And some of you are sitting here right now, and you're like, I just hope I survive the next few hours. And, uh, and so that's, that tends to be a reality for us. This whole surviving or thriving, this full throttle, I was kind of thinking a little bit about this week. It was just a few weeks ago, uh, Bailey Brooklyn and I and Uncle Scott and the two cousins, we, were, we uh, got some ice cream. And so after ice cream, we popped into the arcade. And so here we are getting the arcade, and we said, okay, girls, here's some, here's some tokens so we can play some games. Now, Brooklyn, three days before that, had broken her wrist. So you see her in a pink cast. It's her right hand. It's how she functions in life. And, uh, and so we didn't have the permanent cast yet, so it was in a sling, in a temporary cast. And so she's looking at all the games, and she's so excited to be in an arcade. And what games is she going to play? Well, the first game she picked, I said, all right, Brooklyn, what are we going to do? She says, let's race on the motorcycle. And I'm like... Okay, well, let's see if we can make this work. And so she climbs onto the motorcycle, and uh, I'm thinking, okay, well, the throttle is on this side, and, um, and, and she's going to be leaning back and forth trying to steer this thing. So I said, all right, we can make this work. So I'm looking at the challenge. I said, well, honey, how about, Daddy, I'll do the throttle and the brake, and you just do the steering. You lean back and forth and make sure we get going the right way. All right, team plan. Here we go. I was determined. I was delusional. I said, we are going to win this race. And so as we put our tokens in, we were set. The flag went down, and we, boom, full throttle, we took off. She's going back and forth through the curves until finally I realized, boom, we're starting to run into everything. Like concrete columns on the bridge, boom. Brick walls, boom. Trees, boom. She's running into everything. I'm thinking, this is probably not the right strategy, but I'm still full throttle. And I'm like, okay, well, here comes a curb. I'm going to let off the throttle, little break, and here we go. Oh, that was good. Then as we're going some more, I'm realizing that the game is designed on the easy level, which is what we had to do. I was, it was interesting to see that no matter how hard you hit the tree, no matter how many brick walls you ran into or concrete pillars on the bridge, it always kept you upright and moving at full steam. So I was like, all right, well, this is doable. No more break. I mean, let's just go full throttle all the way through. Till finally we noticed there was somebody passing on the left and on the right, and we're just going, going, going until we were in third place. And we got to the end and we finished, and we were so excited that we came in third place. The brick walls didn't slow us down. The concrete pillars on the bridge, the trees, we had eight of them. They didn't slow us down. We kept going full throttle all the way ahead. Now, when we got done, 
we were so excited to have so much fun. And our discussion was not about the trees we hit or the, the valleys that we got stuck in or could have got stuck in. We didn't talk about slamming into brick walls and how they derailed us off the path. We were so excited, not about surviving, but about thriving. Now you say, what are you getting at? You know, we look at our life and so much concentration goes into how hard we hit the brick wall and it derails us from our trip. Or how deep the valleys are that keep us really from being able to excel and move forward. Or the concrete pillars on the bridge that just seem to slow us down, make us all delusional looking in the wrong direction for help. And instead of surviving, sometimes we just need full throttle, thriving ahead because God is on our side helping us all the way. Now we look at the story of Ruth and, and we know that Sometimes we say, man, I just want my life to finish, and they lived happily ever after. Like, that's just the ending of my life that I want to see, but we have to remember that's not how God always writes the script. That's not the goal. That's not the aim. Now, when we get to this last part of the book of Ruth, we are going to find in comparison that in man's definition, yes, it finishes with a happy ending. But we're also going to find that that's not what was important. The main goal was faithfulness to the end. Now, in the little illustration of the video game that we're playing full throttle, just moving ahead, there had to be determination and faithfulness to get to the end. We could have run into a tree, and I could have grabbed off and just said, Brooklyn, get off. I don't know what we're trying to do. you got a broken wrist, and I, I can't control this thing. You're going back and forth. Let's just go do something else. That's what we tend to do in life. We're like, I, I got to survive. I, I'm tired of running into trees, concrete pillars, and brick walls. But here with Ruth, it came to this end where it was not about survival. It was about thriving in faithfulness. And really, the story of Ruth and Naomi, it's about, it's about the great getting better. And in Ruth chapter 4, look at verse number 13. Now, everything from this point has been quite an adventure. And if you've missed it, um, you've missed some really exciting moments. But we come to verse number 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name, or redeemer, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age, for thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, ten generations are listed from 18 to 21. In verse 21, Salmon begat Boaz, Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, Jesse begat David. So here in the, the climax of the story, kind of coming to this conclusion, it's not about living happily ever after. It's about faithfulness, not surviving, but thriving here at the very end. And so the story of Ruth, go into the unknown. The great gets better. Father, as we dig into your word today, I do want so desperately to show our dependency on you and your spirit to guide our thoughts and direction of the message today. I pray that Christians would be encouraged, challenged, and convicted. I pray seekers would find in their mind and heart the emptiness and the need for a Savior named Jesus. 
So use this time together as a very powerful moment in your will and in your sovereign plan. We'll give you honor and glory and praise for what you choose to accomplish in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at verse number 13, what an incredible um, beginning to this section. It's really escalated quite quickly, has it not? I mean, verse 13 is one sentence, 26 words. But when you read between the lines, look at verse number 13. You see, we have a wedding, we have a honeymoon, a home established, a marriage consummation, a baby conceived, nine months of anticipation, and a healthy baby boy is born. So that all takes place in verse number 13. But let's not forget the journey. See, you remember the journey into the unknown, which was very real for Naomi and Ruth. When you go back to Ruth chapter 1, you study those verses, it was a very dark and gloomy day. It was a very difficult start, but along the way, God taught them patience, trust, faith, dependence, redemption, and finally here, a reward. So this happened because Ruth was not looking for just survival. She was not looking just to have this surviving mentality. She was looking to thrive at full throttle. And so here's what we learn in this last section of verses from Ruth. There's just two simple thoughts today. And really going away from our pattern through the study of the book of Ruth, today I've got two thoughts that kind of do a little bit of a dual action here. Not only does it conclude the whole thought of the book of Ruth, but it grabs some thoughts from this last passage that we're studying. And I typically like to just dissect a verse by verse, grab some truth from those verses. But as you can see, 10 lines of generation here in verses 17 through 22 and verse 13 through 16 have some interesting elements, but it's more of a, uh, just a statement of history. So what is it though that we can gain as we conclude this journey of going into the unknown? I think, first of all, God takes an ugly past and makes a usable life. God always takes an ugly past and makes a usable life. And so many of us in here, you're, we're, we're very grateful for that simple statement, are we not? That God takes an ugly past. Now, there's two reactions in a group like this. First of all, there's the response of pride. The pride is is the trap that happens to Christians, usually happens to Christians who were saved as a child at a young age. And they really, really never experienced such wicked days of adulthood where they were apart from God. And so they have not had this experience or this reality of saying such an ugly past, but now I see such a usable life that God has formed. And so we have to be careful to stay humbled in this aspect. Many of you in here were saved at a young age. You were saved at five, six, seven, eight years old, maybe as a, a, a junior or a teenager. And when you look at your life, you, maybe you've been church all your life, or you've been around this Christian aspect, or the gospel, or this God talk, and so much of it is a part of who you are. It's a part of your makeup. And so when you look at a statement like, God takes an ugly past and makes a usable life, you're like, yeah, boy, I believe that because I see it all around me. That's the pride in our heart. And you see, what also happens is that it, it, it kind of births this, this, this spirit of apathy and boredom in our Christian journey. It can also lead to a judgmental spirit toward others. Because we look at other people as being really bad people that just struggle, and I'm so glad for God's grace in their life. And we forget to use God's word as the mirror showing our own falling short and emptiness. There's also this pride and arrogance, this selfishness or self-righteous spirit. 
It can lead to a lack of faith, a lack of drive, a lack of zeal, a lack of passion. And so for us to look at God takes an ugly past and makes a usable life, let's be careful not to have that spirit of pride that says, yeah, that's everybody else. The other end of the spectrum of how we would respond is some people respond in insecurity. So some people would see this statement, and all of a sudden a lot of insecurities come up in their heart. You know, it says that my past is so messed up that there's no way God could ever use me. And, and that trap usually happens to Christians who were saved out of clear wickedness, but they, they remain so insecure because they don't have a clear understanding of the power of the gospel. And so they have departmentalized what the gospel does. And so they say, the gospel saved me out of my sin, and that's something that I just need to tell others about. But now I'm free to kind of live my life under grace, and I'm just going to live it out and my liberty and my freedoms, and, and, uh, and there's really nothing I can do to, to be righteous or nothing I can do to accomplish God's will. And, and so often we, we fall into that, that snare or that trap that says, well, I'm just going to have to live my life because I cannot, I cannot get past this insecurity. And it's really what it is, is it's, it's a trap that the devil uses to keep us to be inactive in God's work. He, he, he keeps this, the enemy keeps us in this spirit of inability that we don't plug into God's church. And then really the last thing that we're ever thinking about or passionate about is being a blessing to others, using our spiritual gifts to be a blessing to others and then to the glory of God. And so this danger with insecurity leads then to a distrust in God's promises. And you remember that he says that he will remember our sins no more. And he removes our sins as far as the east, as from the west, buries into the deepest part of the sea, chooses to remember it no more, no longer. So we've got to take God for his promises. We have to trust in those promises. Also, this insecurity leads to simply a lack of faith, a lack of faith in the power of God and the power of the gospel that that's for Christians living in sanctification doing the part of being set apart from the world and being more like Jesus Christ. There's this possessiveness of, um, of guilt that they just won't release. We've used the illustration over and over and over again. It's the, it's the heavy book bag of guilt that too many of us just want to keep carrying because we think that we, we owe that. Like, that's just me. That's mine. I take ownership of it. I've got to carry it. And then there's this controlling of your punishment thought. And you won't accept God's complete forgiveness, and you just feel like you have to punish yourself. And so you don't get active in God's work. You don't let him take an ugly past and make a usable life. And when we see the story of Ruth, it's incredible to see some of the people that God took on ugly past and made something incredibly usable. The first one is, is Rahab the harlot. And you're like, whoa, wait, where did we go here? Rahab the harlot. I don't see that in our text. Well, Rahab, you know, is, a, is the mother of Boaz. And we've often probably wondered why this godly Jewish man named Boaz would be so interested in a foreign woman from Moab, Ruth. Like, why would he be so gracious as a godly Jewish man? Why would he be so willing to take on this marriage and give birth, uh, conception to um, half Jew and half Gentile? Why didn't it bother him that his name would probably be whispered all throughout the town as this man who married a former idolater? 
Boaz already knew the testimony of a Gentile woman that one day left her country, her heritage, her false gods, and followed after the one true living God, God Jehovah. Boaz knew that story. Boaz knew how that had happened as his mother, Rahab. Rahab the harlot in Jericho. And when the walls came crashing down in Jericho, she she left her, her city, she left her home, she left her heritage, she left her idols to follow after the God of Israel. And then we would find that a Jewish man by the name of Salmon married the woman with a dark past. And their names are listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. But when you see her name, you don't see Rahab the harlot. You don't see a description in Matthew 1, verse 5, as, as the prostitute that left Jericho. You see a Salmon who had a wife named Rahab who then had Boaz. So here's a tremendous example of a woman with great insecurities. That she left behind and she devoted herself to the laws of God of holiness and purity. Do you believe Deuteronomy 6 when the Israelites were commanded to raise their children as they would walk, sit down, lie, and, and, and whatever they would do, that they were to teach their children to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind? And no doubt that Rahab spent hours and hours pouring that into a little guy named Boaz. That as he would grow older, he would be a man of great godliness and grace himself. Here's another life that was an ugly past and made into being usable. It's Ruth, the Moabitess. Boaz was not put off by Ruth's past. Like father, like son, Boaz was definitely willing to do the very same thing his father had done years ago. Boaz isn't afraid to trust his future children to the care of a former Gentile idolater because he, too, was a child raised by a former Gentile idolater. So Boaz knew that Ruth was a woman with a heart devoted to God. You see that all recorded throughout this. You would see that his compliments to Ruth for being a woman after God, devoted to God, a man uh, or a woman under the protection of the wings of God. And so Boaz knew who Ruth truly was. But notice how her description changes. In Ruth chapter 4, verse number 5, Boaz says, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess. Remember, Moab, the enemy of God, the enemy of the the, the Jews, the the enemy of God's people. They were idolaters. They, they They followed wicked gods, false gods. And then in verse number 10, Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife to raise up the name. And so here we find this description four other times in the book of Ruth. You see Ruth, the Moabitess, Ruth, the Moabitess, Ruth, the Moabitess. It was like that tag, you know, it, it, it's, like, it's like so-and-so, the druggie, so-and-so, the addicted. It's so-and-so, the liar, so-and-so, the bitter one. So-and-so with this tagline that just seems to always come along until we get to the end of chapter number 4, verse 13. So Boaz took who? Ruth. The word Ruth means comfort or friend. Here's a woman whose ugly past was transformed by the power of God into a usable life. Put into the line of Jesus Christ 
the coming Redeemer. And so here, her name is clearly laid out as a life who had been changed. Then there's Naomi, the widow. She sure has had quite the journey throughout this story, hasn't she? I mean, right away in chapter number one, we see that she and her husband and two sons, they, they left Israel because of the famine. They go to Moab, again, the enemy of God, and, and they just stay there for a little while until the little while becomes a little longer, until the little longer becomes 10 years. And then her husband dies, her two sons die, and, and when she comes back with, with Ruth to her hometown in Israel, um, she says, please don't call me Naomi, which Naomi means gracious one. She says, call me Mara because that means bitterness. She says, for the Almighty hath dealt with me. I forget what the word is there in the afflicted me. For the Almighty hath afflicted me. Then she changes her spirit and attitude in the beginning of chapter number three when she begins to praise God for this potential redeemer brought into Ruth's life. I wonder how many of us see ourselves in in Naomi. You know, like a lot of ups and downs emotionally and spiritually. Now, we don't fault Naomi. She went through quite a bit. You know, she, she lost her husband, her two sons. She's trying to figure out life, where to go, where's security. She's just trying to figure out what's next. And she, she obviously felt like God had afflicted her. God had deserted her. And before we beat up Naomi, let's, have, let's just have a reality check because there have been times in our life where we may have thought and felt the same way. We've wondered if the Almighty had afflicted me or he's beating me up or he's really judging me or he's so mad at me, I, I, can't, even, I can't even imagine what's going to happen next. So a little up and down emotionally and spiritually. And This week when I was thinking of Naomi, I had this question. It was actually yesterday. I was on my way from the house to Target. And this thought just came into my mind. And I, in life, who is the most miserable in life. Who is the most miserable? Is it the sinner who does not know God? Is it the saint who wanders away from God? Is it the hypocrite who pretends to live for God? Is it the suffering saint who can't seem to find God? Naomi has an ugly past, but God is going to make it suitable and usable. And for all of us, we sometimes just have those miserable moments. And maybe some of us in here are described by one of those descriptions. But that, that miserable state doesn't need to be where we, we pitch our tent and, and hang out and decide to stay for the long run. It, it just needs to be the, the gym that, that, that we walk into, get the workout and get the exercise so that we can walk out and just get right back to where we need to be. So sometimes, Christians, we decide to just camp out in our misery because that's where we find ourselves to be most comfortable. But I think the reality is we need to get into the gym, and we need to work and sweat it off, and we need to say, this misery is not for me because God is good all the time. God is always only good. God is good in the valleys. God is good in the high places. God is good in every part of our life. It's just us. We need to open our eyes and see that and recognize that. And that's falling into place for Naomi. She's going through quite the journey, the journey into the unknown, and she's learning that every step of the way. Now, Samuel, when he writes this, he, 
some reason, somehow, did you notice in our text, verses um, 14, 15, 16, even in the 17, all the attention now is poured into grandma. So grandma Naomi, yeah, the one who is a miserable wreck, the one who was wondering if there was even reason to live, the one who thought God Almighty was against her, now is focused on God. She's a beaming grandmother. How many grandparents in here? Would you just raise your hand, grandparents in here? Look at that. Man, that represents the reality of the statistics in America. They say that now in America that over 45% of the American citizens are a, are a grandparent. Now, here is something interesting that Warren Wearsby said. He was a grandpa, and he said, Grandchildren are better than the fountain of youth, for we get young again when the grandchildren come to visit. Yeah, then you're old again the next day. <laughs> the baby boomers have become the grandparent boomers. And there are now more grandparents in the U.S. than ever be before, some 70 million, according to the latest census. And I think three-fourths of them live in Florida. I just believe that for sure. <laughs> well, grandparents are awesome. We know that. I have to say that. The majority of you in here are grandparents. <laughs> and you think that grandkids are perfect little people, don't you, Grandma? Don't you, Grandpa? Grandma says, look at my cute little angels. And mommy's thinking, yeah, fallen angels. <laughs> Grandparents don't see the spilled cereal or the muddy tracks on the floor. It just doesn't seem to bother them. You know what else doesn't bother grandparents is if the grandkids eat dessert first. Or if that's all they eat. That just doesn't bother grandparents, does it? Now, grandparents, we need to remember something. You guys have an extraordinary ability to impact your grandchildren in so many ways. Offer an emotional and perhaps maybe even a physical safety net when their parents fail or falter. Grandparents teach the gospel. Remember, Timothy not only learned the gospel from his mother, but also from his grandmother. So grandparents, you figure out a way how to always direct things to the gospel, a gospel-centered home, a gospel-centered family, a gospel-centered marriage, a gospel-centered church, a gospel-centered life. It is always directing toward the gospel. Be a unique witness of how God has been faithful to your family over the years. Tell the stories of God's grace. Tell the stories of God's miraculous work. Remember in Joshua chapter 4 how they had built the memorial stones and they were on the banks of the Jordan River and so they would serve as storybooks for the grandparents to tell as they would walk and look and tell the stories of what God did for their families. Be a wise counselor with years of experience and biblical knowledge. Don't be afraid of them asking hard questions. It's okay to say that you don't know. It's okay to say, go home and ask mommy. It's okay to do that. But use your experience, use your biblical knowledge Study the Bible so that you can pour it into somebody else. And then be a non-judgmental counselor as the grandchildren share their difficult questions and experiences. Be a place of refuge and comfort for grandchildren who, who feel that there's no one else that they can confide in with trust and confidence except for mom and dad. And be that shoulder to cry on, be that ear to hear, be that voice of, of godliness 
invested in their life. Understand the significance of milestones in a child's life. They don't get bogged down with the details. Grandparents don't get bogged down with the details as much as they just cheer on their grandchildren um, through these milestones. But be there. Now, some of you grandparents, you have been promoted or in, and put into a place of, of raising your grandchildren. And as you approach that, you have, to, you have to ask God for discernment and wisdom of how you take on that role. But definitely always continue to pour the gospel into those hearts. And then never contradict what mom and dad are trying to steer and to do and to, and to push and to promote. Come alongside them. Be a promoter. Be a supporter. And so Grandma Naomi, a messy life that God made usable. Then there's Boaz, the redeemer. <laughs> what more really can be said about Boaz? Like Boaz is the hero here. He's godly. He's sharp. He's honest. He's the prince in shining armor. He's this man that does the right thing the right way. He shows us a great picture of an even greater redeemer named Jesus Christ who is going to come. And Boaz is the great-grandfather of David, and he fits right along in this line. And uh, what a tremendous example of a life lived for God. Then there's David the king. When we think of a life that is ugly, but God still made usable, I think David fits into that very well. Because if anyone knows about God taking an ugly past and making a usable life out of it, it would have been David. David the adulterer, David the liar, David the murderer, David the messed up dad, David the confused husband, David the delusional at times. But then always remember David with Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is an incredible psalm of repentance. And when you read Psalm 51 and you look at what true repentance is, even for our own lives, mark this down, folks, for us to have true repentance, not sorry we were caught, but this contrite heart means this confession, this confession. Yes, I did this. There's a recognition that's taking ownership. That's saying it's not everybody else's fault. It's not her fault. It's not his fault. It's not their fault. It's not their fault, it's just, it's mine. Recognizing this ownership, it's personalizing it, and then being completely honest with God. You know, God is the one we can be the most honest with. He already knows your heart. He knows your mind. We don't even know our own hearts. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? But we can just be honest with God. We can share our, our, our failures, we can share our doubts, our insecurities, and this Redeemer named Jesus Christ who paid the price for us brings us this great forgiveness when we have this true repentance. Now, secondly, a lesson that I see here from the book of Ruth in finalizing everything is that God does not let man's obstacles get in the way of his sovereign plan. We often here will label obstacles in our life of what can keep us from staying focused or growing or implementing spiritual truths into our life or just surviving every day if we want to talk about surviving again. And there's many times that these obstacles happen in our life. And there's a quote by Derek Kidner. He said, God's hand is all over history. God works out his purpose generation after generation. 
Limited as we are to one lifetime, each of us sees so little of what happens. A genealogy is a striking way of bringing before us the continuity of God's purpose through the ages. The process of history is not haphazard. There's a purpose in it all. And the purpose is the purpose of God. We get all riled up because our story is not being written like we want. And we don't see a happily ever after ending to our script. But understand there is a purpose in it all. And the purpose is the purpose of God. As a Christian, if you truly are living your life to the glory of God, you will see and realize that through the ups and downs that God's purpose will be accomplished. Now, we understand that we suffer consequences along the way from our own decisions as well as the choices that are made by others. Some of you in here today, you're suffering because of choices that were made by other people. But then the reality is, is often all of us in here suffer through these consequences of life because of decisions we have made on our own. That's a part of taking ownership. That's a part of recognizing and personalizing it. And so when we suffer these consequences along the way, God is using them for his purpose. Now remember, not every bad thing that happens in our life is a part of some judgment of God's justice coming down on us. The truth is, is that when trials come into our life, we use that as a time of evaluation. God, what is the lesson I need to learn through this? Is this just a simple stretching of faith? Is this a pushing me forward to the full dependency on God? Or is there something in my life that I see and I know that needs to be worked on? Nobody wants to be chiseled. Nobody wants to, to have to have things cut away from us. But the process that God uses to accomplish his purpose sometimes is a chiseling process, and God will do that on our part. Also, we experience his restoration because of a sincere, contrite heart. This restoration will come when there's a true brokenness, when there's a true sorriness for what we have done. This contrite spirit shows that we have shown our love and loyalty to ourselves instead of a love and loyalty to God. When we make that choice as temptation comes, we have that moment where the temptation is not the sin, but the decision to follow through with that temptation becomes that step and that moment where we have chosen to love ourselves instead of being loyal to our God. And then last, our legacy of faith will carry on much further than our lives will live. Our legacy of faith will carry on much further than our lives will ever live. Our status has changed, Christian. We've gone from sinner to saint. We've gone from enemy to friend. We've gone from orphan to child, from lost to redeemed, and from beggar to bride. Seeker, here today, what we're talking about as a church family is the gospel message that transformed our lives. In here is no one that's perfect. In here is no one who has arrived or accomplished everything. We're just simply living day by day in the grace of God who has saved us. The songs we sang this morning were all directed toward the purpose of the gospel. There is this thought of celebrating how great and awesome our God is. But why does that description come? It's a God who demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Christ died for us. 
You see, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's Jesus. So that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he says, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And as Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave that commission, and the disciples took that mission and said, this is what we're here to do, to live for the glory of God and proclaim the gospel truth to everyone we come in contact with. And so as the church today, thousands of years from that moment of ascension, we grab a hold of that mission. We allow that to be a part of our passion. We make that a part of our DNA. We make that the cause for why we live and we look to share the love of Jesus Christ. If we want to pretend like we love people, we have to be in love with God. We have to truly believe who he is and, and what he is and that we are a part of who he is so that we can live for him. And so here, we see that the story comes to an end pretty abruptly. And I'll be honest, as I prepared this week, pretty sad. But the journey to the unknown comes to an end through the book of Ruth. But when we see this, we know that every fairy tale has an ending. And even the story of the bride named Ruth had to come to a conclusion. This true story that was lived out in that time and recorded on the pages of God's word for us today, we see that this story has tremendous truths that can help change our lives. But the story of the bride of Christ, Christians, the church, you see, that story is full of exciting elements for us. A life that needed grace from a qualified redeemer. It's submitting heart, a submitting heart to the extension of love by a redeemer. Now, you may know that there's a redeemer, but are you submitting your heart to the extension of love from that redeemer? Because the free gift of salvation is offered to all men who will believe. And so for you to, to say, that's not me, that's the ugly past, I can't be used by God, is to say, no, this can be you. And so here we would find that a submitting heart to the extension of love by the Redeemer, and then a Redeemer who was willing, able, and capable of settling our sin debt. And then the last words that will be said to our story as the bride of Christ is not the end. And it's not even that they live happily ever after. But rather, I believe we need to, as the bride of Christ and as the church, we just need to hang on. Full throttle. Not surviving, but thriving. Because the great gets better. Are you ready to be a part of that? I hope you are.